A local auction gives you the chance to buy and sell games for a good cause and the evolution of a rising star on the Chicago game company scene. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of Board Game Times, the podcast about the people, places, and events making tabletop gaming great in Chicago. As always, I'm your host, Clark Bender. First off, I want to take a moment to acknowledge a small, personal milestone. As I mentioned a moment ago, this is the 13th episode of Board Game Times. I produce the podcast every other week, so that means I've been doing this now for just half a year. That may not seem like much, But it's already something like 10 hours of interviews and a lot of time and work behind the scenes, believe it or not. I'm not complaining because even with only 13 episodes behind me, I've already been privileged to meet and talk to an amazing group of Chicagoans working in and associated with the tabletop gaming industry. My original purpose in starting this podcast was to share with others all the incredible people right here in Chicago that are doing something with tabletop gaming, and honestly, I could not be happier with the results so far. I've barely scratched the surface, and in the coming weeks and months, I hope to continue to introduce you to more people living in the area who are making, playing, and sharing games with all of us in one way or another. I hope in some small way that my podcast contributes to your enjoyment of tabletop gaming and that it inspires you to reach out and meet others who share our passion, and, of course, to play lots of games. I want to thank all of you who've listened to the podcast so far. I especially want to thank all of my guests in these first 13 episodes. You are all inspiring to me, and I thank you for everything you've done and continue to do for board gaming and tabletop gaming of all kinds. It continues to be a personal joy to rediscover this hobby, So thank you all for coming on this journey with me. So let's get back to this week's podcast. I'm doing something a little different with two interviews this week, one short and one longer. I'm doing that because both of them have time-sensitive events happening right now. One has a live Kickstarter that ends in just a couple of days, and another has a great gaming event coming up in just a couple of weeks. So in a few minutes, we'll get to my regular interview with Andrew Nerger of R2i Games here in Chicago. R2i is the company behind the critically loved and very successful game Canvas, released just this year and already in the top 150 family games on BoardGameGeek. They've got a live Kickstarter ending this week for their new game Don't Go In There. We'll talk all about that as well as Andrew's experience in game design and starting his own publishing company with co-creator and longtime friend Jeff Chin. But first, I want to share a shorter interview with game designer and event organizer George Jaros. George is behind the Extra Life charity auction here in the Chicago area, and it happens in just over a week. So let's go to that first, followed by my interview with Andrew. I'm speaking with George Jaros of GJJ Games. I'm doing a short segment with George today because I want to make sure we talk about an upcoming event that George organizes and make sure we get the word out so you get a chance to participate. George is a game designer and developer based here in Illinois. George, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the event, just briefly tell me a little bit about GJJ Games and what that's all about. 
Well, about uh, seven years ago, I got immersed in the board game hobby and uh, started designing games and reviewing games. Uh, so yeah, over the last seven years, I've really been doing a lot of game design, been going to protospiel events and stuff like that. I've also been uh, doing board game reviews and stuff on my site and interviews with board game designers. I've got the uh, people behind the meeples board game interviews that I've interviewed over 300 designers on. Uh, so that's been a big part of where I've been at. And then over the last six years now, I've been involved in the Extra Life charity fundraiser for Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. So let's talk about Extra Life. That's an event that's coming up and a great charity. So uh, tell us about the national charity, I guess, or the national group, and then what you're going to be doing here locally. Yeah, Extra Life uh, started in 2008 after a young child, Tori Edmund, passed away from cancer. She passed away from childhood leukemia after about four years of battling with it. And she was working with the sarcastic gamer community and they got a lot of donations of video games and stuff. And she got so many donations that she started passing them out to other sick kids in the hospital. And after she passed away, that kind of took off into a larger movement of people raising money for childhood cancer. And then that snowballed into just raising funds for children's miracle network hospitals for all children's illnesses and, and stuff. So in 2008, that became an official organization and gamers all around the, the country and all around the world came together uh, raising funds for Children's Miracle Network hospitals. And it started out mostly in the video game community. Then it expanded to include board gamers, RPG gamers, people that play sports, you know, pretty much anything that is considered a game, a pastime, people can do to raise funds. And the big event that Extra Life holds is a 24-hour uh, game day, they call it. And it's usually the first Saturday of November. People all over the world play games for 24 hours. People live stream them on, on Twitch or YouTube or whatever and raise funds for Children's Miracle Network Hospitals through Extra Life. And so I've been doing that since 2016, been participating in a 24-hour game marathon, and then also participating in an auction that was started by a game store uh, locally. And it was originally an auction for local gamers and then kind of turned into more widespread uh, thing when I started reaching out to publishers and stuff to sponsor the event. In the last couple of years, it's really snowballed into something pretty huge. Great event. And this year's Extra Life Game Day is Saturday, November 6th, correct? Correct. So I usually do my 24-hour marathon from Friday to Saturday. So I will be starting my 24-hour marathon on Friday, November 5th at 7 p.m. and going till 7 p.m. on Saturday the 6th. I'll be live streaming on my Facebook page and on YouTube. And then that is also when I kick off the auction on the 5th at 7 p.m. And that will run for a whole week till the 12th at uh, 10 p.m. And those are central time. In the past, we've done an in-person event at There's Fun in Store here in DeKalb, Illinois. But in the last two years with uh, COVID, so in 2020, and then again this year, 
I don't believe we're going to do an in-person event. Uh, we didn't last year. I just streamed for 24 hours. This year, I may have a couple of friends come visit for a little while since we can kind of do that, but we're not going to have a big in-person uh, event. So I'll be streaming on Facebook and YouTube. Got you. And what will you be playing, demonstrating, showing people on your channel that day? Well, last year, since it was just me, it was a lot of solo games. I, I did a few games with my family, but uh, this year I hope I can have a couple of my friends come over and play a few games. And I will be probably playing a lot of games solo uh, overnight uh, when, when most normal people are sleeping. But I will also be showing off some of my game designs uh, as well. So I've got uh, a game. It'll be my first published game. It's called Rolling Seas that I will be uh, showing off in a couple of my newer designs like Go Make a Hike and Polyhedral Potions and stuff like that. I also, one of the things I enjoy doing is making solo modes for other games. So I will probably play those uh, overnight as well. And I will also be doing uh, marble races and Hot Wheels car races and stuff. Uh, one of the things I did in 2019 was called the Great Meeple Race, where people who donated to the fundraiser uh, got assigned to a different color, and I had four different colored uh, meeples on a poster that uh, raced along based on how much was raised. During the auction, I'll have several different events where the different colored meeples raise points, and then uh, whoever donates to the auction and chooses a, a color of meeple that they want to donate for, they'll be entered into a raffle to win some prizes. Fantastic. I should mention I first met George at Protospiel Chicago. I have seen and played his game Rolling Seas. And so you owe it to yourself to tune in and watch it when he demos it because really fun game. We played it with people. I can see how you can play it solo, but we had a group of people and just a blast. Old fashioned high seas adventure. It's amazing how much you can pack into a box with some dice, a few cards and uh, some maps that you can draw on with your own pencil. So Really encourage folks to check that out. Sounds like the marathon will be a fun time. Thank you. Thank you. And then let's talk about the auction, uh, which, mm -hmm. as you said, was kind of the primary fundraiser. How do they participate if they want to uh, buy some games and donate to a good cause? Yeah, so there are really three ways that you can help out with the auction. Um, the first way is to donate games. And if you are a publisher or you know somebody in the industry, you can donate games, uh, accessories, shirts, whatever you have that is uh, board game related, and they get sent to me and I list them on the auction website. We also have, uh, I partner with a couple of other uh, media personalities. Uh, they donate review copies of games that they've received or just games from their collection. So most of the donated games and items from sponsors are brand new, but some of them are used, uh, gently used. If you are local to the Chicagoland area, you can also donate games by dropping them off at There's Fun in Store in either DeKalb or Elgin. If you do that, you have the option of having 20% of what you've raised go to the charity, and then you earn the full amount in store credit at There's Fun in Store. Or you can split it 50-50, or if you like, you can donate your games and have 100% of the earnings go to the charity. You know, those are two ways to donate games. The deadline is tentatively November 1st, just because I need some time to enter them into the auction. But, you know, I'm happy to accept them anytime. Last year, I added a couple of games to the auction right in the middle of 
of the auction, you know, in the middle of that week, not going to turn anything down because every last penny helps out the kids at the hospitals. The other way that you can help out is by registering on the auction site and bidding on games. For that, you don't have to be local. Uh, We've shipped games all over the world last year. The auction site is charityauction.bid slash 2021 extra life hyphen GJJ games. So you can uh, register on the site and you can bid on games. I have over 400 games in the auction already and dozens more coming from some more sponsors. I got my 77th sponsor actually this morning. So we have you know hundreds and hundreds of games from 77 sponsors right now, plus a number of uh, local community gamers have donated a ton of games as well. I was paging through the auction site a little earlier today, and uh, George is telling the truth. There's <laughs> lots of great games in there, some classic older games. There's some really new stuff, got some of his designs mm-hmm. in there, all sorts of things. So I'm pretty sure any gamer will find something to bid on there. There's there's something for everyone, and uh, and it's not just games. There are RPG books. There are t-shirts and mugs puzzles we've got we've got tons and tons of stuff there's a number of different categories uh so the bulk of things are games but there's a little bit of something for everyone and then the uh the third way that you can help out is just by sharing the auction telling people about it all the games in the world don't mean anything if uh if we don't have people bidding on them (laughs) so let let people know and more people that come to the site and bid on the games, the more we can raise for kids in Children's Miracle Network hospitals. Fantastic. And I assume people can also just straight up donate as well. Of course, of course. Yep. On the auction website, there's a link at the top that says donate. You can donate directly to the campaign. You know, so if you know somebody that is not into board games, but still wants to help out, they can donate directly to the, the fundraising campaign. So there you go. Lots of ways you can participate. You can just straight up donate donate games for the auction you can go participate in the auction and buy yourself some games and make sure you bid high right it's all going for a good cause it is uh and then there's also george's game day event on the 6th itself where he's going to have a bit of a game marathon you can participate in and i'm sure that's going to be a blast so george one last time important urls people should be aware of in terms of how they can get to your site and the extra life auction sure the best way is just to go directly to the auction page. There's a ton of information on it. Besides the games, I've got lots of information about the auction, about Extra Life, about our sponsors, and that is charityauction.bid slash 2021 Extra Life hyphen GJJ games. And that has links to my site where I do reviews and interviews and, and have my games. It's got links to all our sponsors' sites. It's got links to directly to Extra Life, where you can donate. So that's the hub of everything right now. And George, let's give the URL to GJJ Games as well, just so if people get confused and they're trying to find the Extra Life charity, they can go there also. And that is georgejarris.com slash GJJ Games. Jarrus spelled J-A-R-O-S, correct? Yes. Yep. And you can also search for uh, search for GJJ Games on Google and it'll come up or Facebook. I'm out there everywhere. <laughs> All right. Well, George, thank you so much for joining me for this abbreviated section to talk about this upcoming event. I hope everyone really participates in it and you have a successful year, uh, maybe your best year ever. Let's hope for that. I, I hope so. And let's make sure to get you back on the show soon so we can talk about some of your designs. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, George. Take care. Thank you very much. 
Okay, that wraps up my interview with George Jaros of the Extra Life Charity Auction. Now let's get right into my interview with Andrew Nerger. He is one of the co-founders of R2I Games here in Chicago. I'm joined today by Andrew Nerger. Andrew is the co-owner of R2I Games along with Jeffrey Chin. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Clark. I'm really excited to be here. Andrew and Jeff have started R2I over the last few years here in Chicago and have a number of successful Kickstarters that they have run. And they've got a current Kickstarter, Don't Go In There, that we will definitely be talking about and spending a little time on because it's just got a few days left depending on when you are listening to this episode. Andrew, tell me how you came to be in Chicago and your your history with games and gaming. Oh, man, big question. Yeah, so I grew up in Edison Park, right on the outskirts of Chicago, and then moved to the suburbs when I was around 11. I've always been kind of big into games, even earlier than I remember. A couple months ago, my aunt sent me, she lives in New York, and somehow she's like, hey, I was going through some stuff and I found an old board game that Andrew drew up when he was like five years old. I didn't remember doing it. Um, I have no idea how it worked. But I was like, hey, I didn't know that was happening. But since then, playing games with friends uh, was a big part of you know my life. Detrimental to some of my high school, I, um, I learned how to program games on a calculator freshman year of algebra. And instead of paying attention class, I did that and led to low grades. So, I mean, it kind of started out early as an obsession. Uh, in high school, I met Jeff and Jeff was also big into games. And we'd have friends over and we'd do all sorts of fun stuff. We made our own version of Apples to Apples that had our friend inside jokes. Jeff put together a, a Super Mario party where all our friends dressed up as, you know, Mario characters. And we did like physical challenges. Later, after college, Jeff and I ended up becoming roommates. And that's when, you know, just all the board game talk came out and we ran a 24-person Hunger Games-based role-playing game with friends online. And after that, we were like, hey, you know, maybe we should try to make a game. That's awesome. What a great origin story there. (laughs) So I want to take it back a little bit. Did your family play games? Did you inherit some of this passion from your family? I do remember playing uh, games with my family. I mean, we played the standard Monopoly, Scrabble, Life, getting together with, you know, cousins and stuff. My mom and my dad weren't like avid gamers in any such way. I don't know where it really came from. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Were you both really passionate about games or was it something you sort of discovered together, do you think? I think Jeff, at a very early age, was super comfortable making lots of games. He had two siblings and he drove the kind of imaginative times that he had with his siblings. And so I think he was a lot more comfortable in the creation aspect, whereas like, uh, my game design was like a was like a little hidden secret, you know, like these calculator games I made were just for myself and I didn't really share them with anyone. I was just like, this is for me. And I never thought of, you know, bringing more people into it. When do you think you started getting more serious about gaming? Yeah, so Jeff made, um, you know, he really ran and put together the first Hunger Games. If people don't know, it's it's based on a book where a bunch of kids go into a free-for-all death circle and one person survives and wins um so we put the first year together and i played it and then we were living together and i i liked it so much but i had all these ideas so we just started talking 
almost obsessively about it for hours every day. What should we do? How do you make it better? How do you make it work online? And so um, I think that's when it really got serious because it was just, it was just constant talking and like, it was us discovering and having thoughts for the first time about game designs and what's fun and what would people like to be doing. So, you know, we spent like six months, nine months, probably just like talking about it and designing a new experience for our friends. And then we did it again. We were like, oh, let's do this Hunger Games thing again. And we really revamped it. And people really liked the changes. And then we did it a third time. So, you know, that began the serious process of like, we're talking about this a lot. We're doing iteration. We're almost, it's like the very early stages of playtesting, right? Where it's like, hey, we got this idea. We show some friends. They tell us how it went. We get to experience it ourselves. We go back to the drawing board. Okay, how do we improve upon this? Even without knowing it, I think that's when like the real serious design thoughts started to happen. This is post-college, right? This is post-college, yeah. So yeah, we were you know working our nine to fives and then coming home and having the energy to just think about this stuff. That's great. So what was that game like? Was that like a, a one night thing? Was this like a campaign? Oh, it was crazy, Clark. It was over a period of nights. It happened on an online forum. And what would happen is a post would get submitted DM style. Here's what you're surrounded by. There's a giant bird in the sky. There's an egg underneath it. You know, it could attack you. You might be able to get the egg for food. What do you do? And then people would reply. We'd say, you have 48 hours to reply to this post with what you do. We might put some game mechanisms around it, you know. People would have attributes, role, strength to see if you do this and you'll have outcomes. Very role player experience. So yeah, every couple of days, there's kind of like this, almost like an assignment due. People would play along and then sometimes they would, you know, meet their end and sometimes they'd be successful. So so did you both have some role playing in your background that led to this or is it just something you would kind of remodeling the game after? The role playing was was I think a big part of Jeff's life. Jeff was a, a DM master. He DM'd my first Dungeons and Dragons playthrough, which didn't happen until I think it was like a junior in high school. And so yeah, the background was very much seated in Jeff about how to do role playing. And then we kind of like entered that foray and kind of discovered ways to do it together and how do you tell a story. Sounds like a blast. And so you say <laughs> you you iterated a few different versions of this in your 20s. Mm-hmm. Are you playing other games at the same time? Are you also discovering the board gaming hobby or other role playing as well? Or is it most of your time and energy being focused on this work that you're creating? Very, very little in the board gaming realm, to be honest. Jeff had like been playing Catan with his family and introduced me to that. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. So we finished up a bunch of these Hunger Games online things. And we said, hey, is there a way to put this in a physical version? This was so much fun. Could we just, like, this seems like it could be a board game. Then, like, the next question was, like, oh, well, like, what board games are out there? And I think that's when we really started to, like, dive deep and really get introduced to the hobby. And then we, you know, just discovered this crazy world. I think we were in the same realm as most people are, where it's just like, oh, there's mostly Monopoly and stuff. Catan's like a newer thing, but maybe there's just Catan out there. And, you know, we start going to board game meetups and we're like, there is this watershed of amazing new concepts in board game design. I think that's when it got super obsessive for sure. 
Were you also discovering Kickstarter around this time? Because I think of R2I as a very Kickstarter-oriented company, obviously. So how was that sort of folding in with what was going on with your board gaming experience? Yeah, we got in at a really good time. I think it was like not too long after Cards Against Humanity made a big splash on Kickstarter, which kind of opened the gates for a lot of other board game publishers to get on there. We were right kind of in that timeline, maybe a year or two later. And so that's when it became an option for us. We're like, you know, if we do make this, like, how would we do it? It's like, oh, we could get funded on Kickstarter for, you know, people who want to do the publishing piece. If you're not already a part of the business, it was really the first, you know, moment when regular Joes could get into it. Also, what was really helpful, one of Jeff's cousins was already using Kickstarter, making playing cards. I believe his company's called Season Playing Cards, and he does this amazing stuff. But he was having a lot of success, and it was easier for us to say, oh, this isn't just this crazy platform website that won't work for us. This is something that's real and possible. So how does that then lead to your first game, Road to Infamy, that you kickstarted? Yeah, so, and this happens a lot. I don't know if it's just a Jeff and I thing, but, you know, we said, this is how you make a Hunger Games game. We put it together, we put it down, and we're like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know if this is even possible. And, like, as we tested it and we played it, it just kept morphing and morphing. At one point, it was like this medieval knights game, and then, you know, it landed in this Chicago gangster theme that we liked, but it was, you know, so just this idea of making a board game and making it around the Hunger Games just morphed for us so much and, and ended up being a road to infamy. Yeah. And then we had a game. So how did you know when you were ready? That's a good question. If you were ready. I don't know if you're ever ready. I, that's not our design process. I, I think we get to a point where we're pretty happy with the product. It seems like we're making less changes to it or probably not going to make any more changes. The point that you're ready is you, at least for us, I think nothing's broken. You've had a number of play tests where people are really enjoying themselves. You can say, okay, not only is this palatable, but like we are making fun moments and we're having fun with it. And then, of course, the artwork's mostly done and we're happy with the rule set. We've written it down and we're like, okay, I don't think these rules are going to really change. I think that's about the time. But I think it's always exciting to get onto Kickstarter. So we're always setting aggressive due dates for ourselves. So how did that first Kickstarter go for you? What were the highs and lows of that? The highs were we got funded on the first day. I think, honestly, the first one felt very magical because we definitely had the expectation that there was like a 50-50 shot that we could even make it. So once we were funded, everything after that was really icing on the cake. So I think we're happy with everything. The lows were probably the first two days we had a lot of backers. And then I think any Kickstarter veteran will tell you the kind of middle part of the campaign, you're getting very few backers. And so we were every day trying to think about, oh, our numbers keep going down. How do we get them to go back up? And we were doing conventions and we were doing playtest nights and all sorts of just little events to try and spur interest. It was all fun, but it was like looking back, it was a ton of work and we probably 
I don't know if we were putting out all our energy in the right spots. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anybody's first time producing a game to go smoothly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. The fact that it gets done is a minor <laughs> miracle anyway, right? Exactly. So you put it up on Kickstarter and get funded, which is mm -hmm. awesome. And mm -hmm. now you've actually got to make it. Were you set up and ready to go into that phase? Or was that kind of like, oh, wow, now we have to learn a whole new set of skills and make that happen? What's that next phase like then for you? I think it's a little more transparent now, but back then, my background is I got a degree in operations management and information systems, which is just a big convoluted mess of basically logistics and tracking. So I did a bunch of research. The information was out there. It was just hard to find, but there were some great blogs, this great publisher who just had article after article about how you make a board game. And I went on to Board Game Geek and I found people talking about manufacturers they like to work with or fulfillment centers they like to work with. At the same time, I was researching on Kickstarter. I was watching all these other Kickstarters, backing a bunch of Kickstarters and looking to see who they were partnering with for fulfillment and manufacturing. And then once the talk started with these fulfillment partners and these manufacturers, I think it became, oh, this, this isn't too hard. This isn't too complicated. You know, it was, um, they really did a good job of kind of explaining the process. We worked with AdMagic for the first printing. They were just starting up kind of relationships with small publishers. And we worked with, I think the company's gone now. It's called, it was called Ship Naked. <laughs> they used to fulfill a lot of the early Kickstarters around 2014, 2015. Uh, and they were a pleasure to work with and they made it really easy, honestly. So that also felt really good was knowing that the expertise was out there and they were willing to listen to us newbies stumble through the process and figure out what to do. Was there a point in that process that you remember sort of thinking, we need to do this again? It definitely felt like a one-off when we, when we launched the campaign, when we finished. I think we were both very physically and like almost emotionally exhausted from the first one. There were just so many highs, so many lows, there was so much to do. But it, there was also like a rush, <laughs> to be honest. There was, it felt so good when we got funded and it was... We just wanted to follow that feeling. And so, you know, not that long afterwards, we were talking about game design again, because honestly, that's just what we do when we get together. And then, you know, once you have a game, what do you do with it? We, we had already seen, you know, kind of a blueprint for getting it done. And so it was like, hey, you want to like have this amazing, super risky all in bet on you know kickstarter and it was like yeah let's do that again so that's what brought us back just i think just the innate nature of enjoying the process of making games brought us right back to kickstarter what's your design process like with jeff what's that working relationship like for the two of you the, the nice thing is we have like a nice mix of skills so my background being in business i do some of the more businessy things like inventory management, logistics, ledger balancing. <laughs> yeah, the exciting stuff. And then, uh, yeah, he has a background in graphic design and 3D modeling, movie making. He went to school for that too. So website design. So he's got this huge graphic background. 
So uh, in some ways, we split the, the company needs up that way. We both handle customer service. And then when it comes to the design piece of it, that ebbs and flows. So usually there's a period, once we finish a game, if we don't have any other projects to work on, we take a period where we both kind of just design stuff, show each other. And then at some point, one of the designs kind of rings a bell and we both get really excited about it. And then we kind of move more towards almost like a development mindset of it, where it's like, okay, we think we found the hook, the premise, the theme, and now we're going to try and make it as good as we can. I would say that's the general kind of way it tends to go. But um, we're always having new ideas for designs. We're always kind of playtesting stuff with each other. And so what's your process like for spinning that design up? What's the road from, we think we have a design to, yeah, we think we're ready to kickstart it? Basically, once we're both kind of sold on like, I think this is something that could go a Kickstarter, then it goes into like pretty aggressive play testing where we're trying to get to the table every week in front of different people. And we're trying to polish out anything that bugs us or we're trying to heighten certain experiences. And that's probably the majority of where the game sits. Feedback's super important. And so we're always trying to push each other to to get the good feedback and to test new stuff. I like to say like every time I play test a game that we're making, I want it to have some sort of change. I want to be trying something new. At this point, there's no real reason to play test the same thing over and over again, unless we're very sure and we're just trying to like, hey, if we could get just like three good play tests in a row using the same rule set and the same components, then I think we can feel really good about moving forward onto Kickstarter with it. When you are playtesting, do you have a philosophy in terms of how you collect feedback or the kind of feedback you're looking for? Do you tend to just watch people and take notes? There's a lot of philosophies out there. And I think I'm glad you asked that to designers because I bet you get some pretty strong opinions. Personally, for me, I don't feel like I need to ask that many questions after a play test. I like to just watch the players and I can tell by their actions kind of how the game is going. Some bad signs, some very obvious bad signs. You know, it's like, oh, we're playing the game and someone's looking at their phone when it's not their turn. And I go, okay, they're not engaged. And then as a designer, I feel like it's your duty to figure out why they're not engaged. Some people ask questions or they, you know, they, they have an agenda for the play test. I'm testing this new mechanism. And so I'm going to ask about this new mechanism at the end of the game, which I think is a great way to do it. And I'm different. I, I feel like every question you ask turns into like a leading question, you know, or, or you got to be very careful about how you are kind of presenting things. And, and play testers, the communication between the play tester and the designer is kind of interesting because I think it's really hard for a play tester to totally communicate the feelings they had and why they had those feelings. So I think the best you can get out of a play tester is this thing made me feel this way. And then a designer can take that and say, okay, is that the feeling I'm looking for? Or what feeling do I want? How do I correct it? So to go back, some people ask questions at the end. I like to let people who have strong opinions about any aspects of the game, I like to encourage them to just talk about whatever that is. And they could talk about moments they really enjoyed during the game. They can talk about something that was frustrating. They can go on a tangent about little graphic design things or wording things. I'm happy to take that too. But I kind of don't want to influence any of their thought process. 
give me your big impression, like right off the bat, kind of try and hold on to that because I think those are the lasting feelings. And those are to me, just like the most important things to pick up. How do you feel about people offering solutions? I'm actually, I'm happy with it. I think it's, I think it's a joy for some people to just feel like to be a part of that design process and have ideas. And so I always like listening to that stuff. In my early days of being a designer, people would, you know, submit these types of ideas for changing the game. And I was like, well, I have to show this person that I've been thinking about this too. And, oh, I actually already thought about that idea. And this is why it doesn't work. And I realized that that's not really a productive thing to talk about. So if someone's like, well, I really think you should have more cards in the deck, you know, that's a great idea and talk to them about why they want more cards in the deck and what kind of cards are they looking for and kind of make it a constructive kind of conversation. And if they're like, I think this is a good idea. I think it's fun to say like, yeah, that is a great idea. You know, like there might be little things or reasons it doesn't work, but those are all things that could change. You know, it's board game design is really fluid and it, there's, there's not really concrete black or white of why something could or could not exist in a game. So it's like, let's go down that road together. I want to just go through a few of your games prior to Canvas and don't go in there and just get your general impressions. Just, you know, kind of first thought that comes to your mind, you know, what you did right, what you did wrong, what you learned. I'm just curious. So Road to Infamy, your first game, what's kind of been your big takeaway from that? Um, There's a lot. It was a, it was a big learning experience for us. I'm really proud of what we put together. That was, you know, hindsight 2020. That was when we kind of realized later after, you know, kind of growing as designers, we're like, oh, you know what? There's actually all this great feedback. There's great feedback that we listened to and we're so happy for that. And there's other feedback that like, for some reason we decided not to listen to. Why didn't we do that? And, and you know, helped us reinforce later that question everything so one one thing for the game is we're like the game's 12 rounds and we we're playing the game and someone said well does it you know 12 rounds seems a little long could it be 10 rounds and we we're like no it's 12 rounds and you know it's funny to talk about now because jeff and i will always say it's like why didn't we try 11 why didn't we try 13 like we did so many play tests for that game it would have been very easy to just toss it in there and see what happened so one of the big learning moments from that, at least from a design perspective, was let's really try some stuff every time we come to a play test and let's not worry if it goes bad. I think a lot of new designers feel that way is they're like, well, this might be the only time I play test with someone and I want to make sure they have a great time. You know, at the end of the day, it's like the point of it is to pick and prod and and try and to help mold a better game. Like you should always be trying to get it to that next step. Yeah, that's great. And so I think Cosmocracy was your next game, Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. a negotiation storytelling game. What are your thoughts on that? That one was a really fun one to make. The idea for it came together super fast. It's a storytelling game, mostly, you know, so kind of based around a debate. Each player plays as like a candidate trying to become president of the galaxy, and they'll debate each other over silly you know, should we build a planet-sized statue of, you know, jelly beans? And then each person goes, why you should or why you shouldn't. That was really fun. It came together really quick. And we got Jeff's, um, one of his old co-workers to, to illustrate it. And we're like, whoa, this looks so good. 
It was just a great time with that one. We ended up signing it with a publisher because we just wanted to see what the publisher designer roles felt like. Overall, great experience, but also cemented our thoughts that um, we really liked having total creative control and we like the publishing aspects and we want to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. So is that sort of where RTY Games as a publisher starts to gel? I would say there's like three major milestones for me that I can think of that were like major steps. The first step was taking our first game road to infamy to Kickstarter. I thought that, wow, we're, you know, we're trying to do something. We're trying to raise money and make something. The second step was probably we had all this money that wasn't Jeff's money and it wasn't my money. It was this company's money. And so we were at a bank <laughs> signing papers writing up a partnership agreement, getting business credit, debit cards. I'm like, oh, this feels super real. Like now there's Jeff, there's me. And then there's this thing we made. You had a business baby. Yeah, we had a business baby. And it was, yeah. (laughs) So that was like right around um, when Road to Infamy was fulfilling and we were designing uh, Cosmocracy. And then the final step was deciding to do it full time. And so I left my job in 2016 because I really, honestly, I just didn't really like it a whole lot. (laughs) And I was like, I think this is the time in life where you're allowed to do this. And if I wait, I, there will be zero time to do this. You know, if I start a family or whatever. So I was like, I should do this. And, and Jeff was looking for work at the same time. So I don't know, we're both free. We, have some savings, like let's try and make it work. And so that was a very stressful year, but what came out of it was Crypt, um, our third one that we just are so blessed to have happen when it happened to, you know, make us feel like, hey, this is this is actually something you could do. And this isn't like a crazy pipe dream and a waste of a year. Crypt was crazy amalgamation of this great box product design concept, packaging concept that worked really well for it. We had amazing pricing. We're going to sell this for next to nothing. And we're going to see what that looks like. What was the price point of that game? It was nine bucks. That's amazing, right? That's unheard of on Kickstarter now. You can't do it today. You can't do it today. And it was really lightning in a bottle for that one. And then after that, we were like, oh, maybe we're a small box game company. And we made After Nova, which is an incredible game. You know, I still love it. I play it today. But it was missing some of that kind of the packaging appeal to it. And it was, I would say like the product just wasn't outwardly sexy enough for the backer. So I expected big stuff from that game. And it it had a, a more of a modest outcome. But, but that was good, too, because when you have a success like Crypt and then you have kind of a modest, you know, your next game is something modest. It's like, great, I can compare these two things. I can really start drilling into what works and what doesn't work. What did we change? What did we keep the same? And so that was a great learning experience. And so it kind of like brought us through the rest of our catalog of games. And so Canvas comes next and definitely can't talk about your company and not talk about canvas Um, (laughs) right so canvas it seems like is sort of the perfect expression of what r2i had been working towards and maybe continues to work towards right because you've talked about small box 
mid-level mm-hmm. games, which is kind of where your, your games have been. You talked about a desire for interesting packaging, then Canvas mm-hmm. is definitely known for that, I think. The passion for graphics and design as an elemental part of the product. So you've had a couple of magical projects, I guess you could say, but it feels like that one's when things really came together for you. What has the success of Canvas allowed you to do as a company, as designers? What do you feel like that has opened up for you now? At the lowest level, some breathing room, because you know, working at full time, the money's been just super tight for a while. And, and to the point where, you know, if Canvas went the route of like an after Nova, I think that was going to be at least my exit from this whole board gaming industry. I'm just, I was like, oh man, I need to spend my time elsewhere. I think for any designer, it takes a while to polish your design chops. And I, I think it's a, it's a interesting skill. And in a lot of ways, it's a hard skill to master. I mean, it's like art, but it's also logic and it's it's so many things together. And so I, I think Canvas was really just the time when we had enough learnings and we'd done enough research and did enough thought process to put out something that, you know, was special. There was an early blog from Jamie Stegmaier, and I think... He's like, these are the five things I look for in a board game. And I was like, this is exactly like how you make a hit board game, which is easier said than done, right? But he's like, you need a unique mechanism that hasn't really been seen in any other game. You need a unique component that really hasn't been seen in any other game. Amazing art and illustration, super clean and understandable and attractive, a great theme that resonates with people with lots of people and then there was a fifth one i'm trying to think what it is but anyway those are the things you need to put together and it's just having the design skills to be able to think about all those things and to execute them on them real cleanly is just really hard to do and that's why um, 2000 board games come out every year and the average person could probably name a dozen of them Honestly, Canvas is probably like, will be for most people the first time hearing about us. And in that way, I think it will start generating a brand identity, which like some reviewers have started talking about, which sounds crazy, but I'm like, I think there's expectations now for what kind of games we make and in the best way possible, because I think what Canvas is, is fantastic. There's level of production value that I think people come to expect from people who design a game like Canvas, which has great production value. There's probably themes that people would expect us to tackle in the future. And and then from the gameplay standpoint, you know, the game is very puzzly, but the the rules behind it are so slim and sleek, which is something I do think, you know, after years and years of working on our designmanship, I think that is kind of our imprint i think that's who we are which is like can we get the most deep gameplay with the fewest rules possible it's just kind of like a concept that we're always talking about like we love what this mechanism is doing but there's a whole page of text like can we get the same feeling with two sentences or what how would you do that yeah it's done a lot for us yeah i think it's kind of started our brand which brings us now to don't go in there which is your active Kickstarter. 
go there now because it may already be over. Because unfortunately, this is only going up a few days before the end of the Kickstarter campaign. Talk to me about Don't Go In There and why was this your next game? Don't Go In There, really something we started really during the pandemic. We were playing around with a, a lot of new ideas and we've always really loved the concept of bidding. Road to Infamy has like a bidding mechanism. Crypt has a bidding mechanism. And we like the kind of player interaction that that kind of has. There's there's also like this gut feeling you play with when you're bidding or you're you know, two people are trying to value an object and it's there's this cat and mouse of that. So I think we just love the player interaction. Yeah, so we're just playing around with that idea. The game morphed so many times. It, it was so many different things. It had different themes at different points during development. When we thought we really had something, we latched onto this idea of, we call it a set destruction game. You're collecting cards, but you're collecting cards to get rid of some of the bad ones. But the way you collect those cards is everyone's kind of placing meeples into a room that's connected to these cards, these items. And you're you're playing with the gut feeling of, of what people want in that room. There's a level of risk you, you have when you play into the room. If you play near the top, it's riskier. You might get the card you want, but there's um, possible penalties for that. And we I think we just really were like, this is a really special mechanism. And it played into our philosophy of being very clean. I like it because um, for people who aren't great with board games, I can just tell them the only rule you need to know is on your turn, you're going to pick up a meeple, you're going to put it in one of these empty spaces. And if that's all you understand right now, that's fine. I'm going to explain a bunch of other rules. It's going to take me like three or four minutes, but just hold on to that. And if you do that, like you'll be you'll be fine and you'll get it as we play. And I think there's something really special about that. And then it features this really interestingly integrated dice tower into the packaging, which it's not like other games haven't had dice towers, but I do feel like you've done something interesting with it. Maybe if you could try and describe to listeners what you're doing in this case. Yeah, so the box that all the components come into fit neatly and they come in a tray. But once those components are taken out, the box itself becomes the dice tower, which means the tray becomes the bumper system for the dice to roll around on the inside. There's a like this uh, lid on a hinge that folds down to become the dice tray where the dice will land. And on top of that, we've made all of that look like a haunted house, which is the theme of the game. It's these kids going into a haunted house, getting into trouble and picking up these items that they shouldn't be picking up. So all that together was took many, many long discussions, but we know we want to marry that theme with the mechanisms going on and create a really unique and memorable component for our backers. I encourage you to go check it out on Kickstarter because it probably sounds like they have a box, they made a dice tower out of it. What's the big deal? But I think that what, what is really interesting is this integration of the, you know, the tray that holds the components being the innards of the dice tower, maybe somebody else has done that. I haven't seen that anywhere. That's just a great little quirk. And I, I think it feeds into this sense that R2I is really interested in crafting not just a game, but an object. This is a box, but it's a special box. There's something different about it, right? With Canvas, you literally made it something you could hang on the wall. And in this case, 
uh, you know, the integration of the dice tower is more the same. So it feels like that's something you're trying to hold on to the sort of treating the object as something very special. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the idea of it. It's it's more than a board game. So yeah, when we were designing it, we said it would be really cool if the box functioned as a dice tower, but we didn't really stop there. We're like, not only does it have to function as a dice tower, it has to be just as good as or better than any dice tower on the market that's sole purpose is being a dice tower. Other games do have dice towers that come in the box and you construct them every game. And it's like, well, how durable is this? How long will this last? We're, we're like, without the game itself, this might be a dice tower you would buy for a role-playing experience you're having about a horror theme or a haunted mansion theme. You're just, hey guys, I have a dice tower and it looks like a haunted house. It functions on that level. It's a little bit beyond just gimmick in that sense. People seem to be responding because the Kickstarter is once again doing very well. Congratulations. Well done. Thank you. You're running a publisher now. Do you Mm -hmm. see yourselves expanding to publishing other people's games or are you committed at the moment to just doing your own? From the get-go, we said we were open-minded to publishing other designers' games. And we've looked at a lot of designs over the past two or three years, people emailing us. We also have a really big network of design friends. Um, and they're always sharing stuff with us. And I, a lot of them are open to the idea that we publish their stuff. I feel like we're very picky. <laughs> We've also been trying to figure out what will be our kind of connection to the game. A, a, a lot of publishers do this. They pick up a design and then they think about developing it for a year. If we want to go down that route, which seems very common, we need to make sure we find a design that we're super excited about and we want to do all that development work towards and find like the right design partner who's easy to work with and fun and we enjoy. I don't want to talk too much about it, but we are at the moment working with uh, another designer. So I think that that will hopefully, you know, come to fruition. We'll, we'll have more to share down the pipeline, but yeah, it's something that we've like just started to dip our feet into. And I think it was just about waiting for the right person projects time. That's really exciting. I'm sure you must also ask yourselves, do we want to put our time and effort into somebody else's game when we could be doing it on our own, right? And having to weigh those those two choices. A hundred percent. You know, first and foremost, I think Jeff and I see ourselves as designers. So we're like, we want to do design work and we want to get in the mud with that. We want to make sure that's a part of what we're doing as well as all this other businessy stuff too. We want to, you know, keep that identity. So reflecting on what you've learned as a designer, as a publisher, what do you think you found out about yourself that you didn't know? What I find out about myself? I learned I'm a risk taker. <laughs> I think I, I found a passion during college. You know, they say, hey, you got to choose a major. This is the thing you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, you know, I got out of college and I was making good money and I was doing this thing. And I was like, It just felt crazy to think that I would be doing that for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I was like, is this what most people do? And yeah, I kind of kind of learned what passion and dedication were kind of in those those years of if you really like something, you'll find time for it. And you'll, you know, no matter what's going on in your life, you'll 
he'll make it work. And I think that was a, a realization that, A, that was in me to be so obsessive and so obsessed with something. And then B, to quit my job to do it. Yeah, that's something I, I don't think I ever imagined. So how do you think you've improved as a designer in this time or design team? Yeah, a couple ways. The big thing is Jeff and I try and make it a point to play as many board games as possible, just so we see what mechanisms are out there and sparks ideas for stuff we want to do. But always being just open-minded and, and kind of seeing what's available. And, you know, why did... This is a crazy idea. Why did it work in this game? It didn't work in that game. So there's there's been a lot of learnings. And I think we both filled up a filing cabinet of sorts in our head of like all these different mechanisms and themes and ideas. The most important to me has just been reading people and getting the right takeaways from playtesting. Whereas I think we did so many dang playtests in the early years and the value and outcome of those playtests so marginal compared to like what we garner from single play tests now. I, you know, getting better at understanding what to look for and really taking action on maybe even very like one-off thoughts or statements or real, oh, well, I thought, you know, I thought this was put in a weird spot, you know, just like actually grabbing hold of that and saying, hey, let's try and do something about that. And then what still challenges you about game design? Maybe it's in publishing and not design. No, it's in everything. I mean, I, I think the reason why we're so drawn towards design is it's so epically full of failure. You know, every time you go to a play test and you're trying to like share your baby with people or, oh, I want here, this is going to be a good time, guys. And it's not a good time. That never gets old. And it's even possible that you have a great play test one day and the next day you have the exact same thing. You play with different people and you have a terrible play test. That's always hard. Yeah, it's a love-hate relationship because it's just these ebbs and flows of like, oh, we're done. We made this amazing thing. And then it's like a week later, it's like, how could we have thought that was such a good thing? It's terrible. Why would we ever think that? Um, I think, <laughs> I feel like that's the hardest part. It may be the emotional roller coaster of it. Um, publishing, publishing is very businessy. I feel like it's very number generated. So I don't know. I feel like those decisions are easier. It's these gray decisions in game design. That's like, is this better? Is this worse? Is it better for some people, but worse for other people? Is this the way to present it? Like, those are the moments. That's the nitty gritty and grayness of, of game design. I don't think ever gets easier. Well, I think I should note for listeners that even while you were talking about that supposedly very difficult part of game design, you were smiling all the way. So <laughs> it's clearly at your core is just something you love and just, and which is great. So uh, congratulations that it's great that you can find something that you not only love, but you're good at. That seems to me like the perfect point to jump out of the interview and go to the questionnaire. Andrew, are you ready to do the Board Game Times minigame? Yes. All right, first question. What is your gaming beverage of choice? Right now it's a high noon, vodka and real juice. Wow, okay, there you go. <laughs> Straight to the hard stuff. Good man. Uh -huh. All right. Your next question then. What is your preferred number of players at the game table? Talked about this a lot with Jeff. It is three. Is the correct number for everybody. <laughs> wow. Very specific. Why three? Um, most board games play really well at three. Four can 
drag sometimes and two might not have enough player interaction. So there's something about three. It's it's hard to find a lot of games that play bad at three if they're playing well at the other player counts. Interesting. Okay. What do you think is your most admirable gaming trait or behavior? I'm very forgiving. So people are like, oh, I forgot to do this on my turn. I'm like, if you're going to have more fun to do it, you should absolutely do it because that's what we're here for, you know? Or if someone makes like a an incorrect or, you know, non-perfect move, I, I might let them know. I'm like, hey, you know, like maybe you should, you know, have you thought about doing this because this might be more points for you or something. So I, I like games for me, I think some people are in the realm of it's a competition. And for me, I'm like, experience a discovery moment and uh, a chance to have a good time. I can't tell you how many games that I've played where there were no take backs, no take backsies. And that person who didn't get to fix their turn just sat there for another 45 minutes going, oh, this is going terrible. And I, yeah. So I'd like to think I'm a good gaming host in that sense. So the next question, which is the flip side of that, what do you think is your least admirable? gaming trader behavior? Um, this was pointed out to me by another design friend a couple of years ago. And I've tried to like temper it down a bit, a bit but I, I have in the past ruined games for people by talking about the game design elements of it. Oh, this is what it's doing. Oh, this is actually not a great way to do this. Because watch this, watch this. Here, here, Sally, grab the card. Yeah, draw it. See, yeah, that wasn't good. No, they they did that wrong. And someone's like, I'm just trying to have fun and play a game. What? Like, stop talking about or going on to tangents about other things. This is a really, this is a really neat idea that this designer chose. And I'll, let me tell you why. And they're like, shut up and play the game. I'm like, <laughs> damn it, it's Yahtzee, Andrew. Stop. <laughs> yeah. But if there were four roles instead of two, <laughs> good one. That's the first time I've heard that. But I can see how, uh, yeah, that might get you killed <laughs> at a gaming table if you overdo yeah. it. Okay, then next question. What is a type or genre of game that you just love to play? Polyomino games just feel really great. They get rid of the math. They're a mathy game with that doesn't feel like math. Tiling, anything that like combines math and kind of touching really fun components. Like tiles are great to touch and meeples are great to touch. I like to think I have a very broad appreciation of, of game types. Besides the one I'll, I'll mention later. <laughs> well, you can mention it right now because what is a type or genre of game you just don't enjoy? So I'll say type of game is a dexterity game. I have a lot of fun with every dexterity game I play for the first time. And I just never see myself going, oh, I want to play that same dexterity game again. I'm more like, oh, let's just play a new dexterity game. So there's like a, a feeling of exploration that's missing or like, you know, what? You know, how do I play this game better next time? It's like, well, why don't you just think and move faster? It's like, okay, like, got it. The two themes I've realized that I'm just not attached to is pirate themed. And I feel like that's because it goes down this route of you must have a pirate ship. It must move across some sort of space, possibly aboard. So it just inherently has spatial movement, which is fine. It's just not here nor there interesting. And then it also... Pirates need to have this stealing aspect, usually from other players. Let's take that. I've seen it done so many different flavors in pirate games, but I'm always 
it's just never that interesting to me. So I'm like, when someone says, here's a pirate game, I'm like, I bet we're going to be moving our ships using some moving mechanism. And I bet we're collecting coins and can take those coins from each other. And it's almost always true. The other one that I just realized today was survival games, like a Lost Expedition, Robinson Crusoe. I just played Paleo today, which is a really great game. If anybody is at all interested in that, I would say pick it up or give it a go. But it's the survival games, like inherently theme-wise, you have to gain a bunch of resources and then you have to lose some, most of those resources due to animals, snakes, hunger, poison. And the uh, relationship of that ebb and flow of like feeling like you're progressing, but then losing a bunch of resources to then gain those same resources again. Just, I realized I'm like, I, I like a more one directional kind of point in my game where it's like, I want to always be moving towards that apex. So that's what I learned today. So I'm glad you brought that up. Wow, that's very good. <laughs> That is also some of the most game designery answers I've ever had to that question. And I love it. I love it. You can defend them very well. Congratulations. Thank you. I like it. Thank you. All right. Next question then. What is a physical game component that you love? Mm, really big, chunky dice. Nothing gets me more excited than like just giant dice. The first time I came across that was like King of Tokyo. I'm like, you can make dice this big. They're so big. I really like big, chunky dice for some. I don't know. Okay. Good one. Who doesn't love dice? Okay. Next question. What is a game you own, but haven't played? Nope. You know what? I think I played on my, oh, I got it recently. Ladies and gentlemen, I got from a friend who is moving and it's the guys need to go and make money so that their wives can buy clothes and stuff, which is, it's kind of probably sexist and a little old, but I heard a forum that's really fun to do the role reversal and make the guys play the ladies and make the ladies play the guys. So I haven't played that one yet. Um, I'll see if I'll get that one to the table. A game waiting to be played. Sort of related, what's a game you really want to play but never have? I just saw a review of Seven Wonders Architects, which seems like super fun and approachable. I don't even think it's on the market yet. I think it's coming out later this month, maybe November. But um. I just liked what it was doing. I'm like, oh, I, I just really want to play that game. It's super simple, Seven Wonders kind of theme. Everyone gets like this wonder that's punch board and it's cut out in the shape of the Colossus or the pyramids. And you like build little sections of it and you get to flip the tiles over and it slowly looks like it's constructing. It looks like a really light game that's good for families. And I'm just really curious about it. I kind of want to pick it up. Okay, final question then. What is a game you currently want to recommend and why? I just played it with a friend and stuck with me. It's called Wild Space. It's by Pandasaurus. I got to play it at Gen Con. My friend picked it up. The rules are really simple, plays really fast, feels really good. It's a hand management game. You're, you're trying to play as many cards from your hand as possible, but the way they do it, it is just so fun. I highly recommend it. It's got a weird theme that doesn't make any sense, but I really like the mechanisms in the gameplay. Also has a great solo mode. I don't like solo modes a whole lot, but this one I was like, if I did a solo mode, I'd want to be designed as well as this one was. All right, Wild Space. It's got a couple of animals and spacesuits on the cover. Strange theme maybe, but, but fun. You made it through the questionnaire and bonus points, you didn't recommend your own game. <laughs> because now is when you get to do that. So yeah. time for some shameless promotion. 
Uh, let's tell people where they can find you, where they can find out about you. Let's talk about the Kickstarter. The floor is yours. Yeah. If anyone wants to learn more about our products, maybe submit a design request, they can go to r2igames.com and you can also uh, purchase our games there. Right now on Kickstarter, we have Don't Go In There. It's a haunted house themed push your luck bidding game for two to five players. Hopefully five players by the end of the campaign. We haven't hit that goal yet. But it is uh, perfect for Halloween, spooky type of game where you're creeping through a haunted house, collecting cursed items and running into ghosts. You want to be the least cursed at the end of the game. So the player that is able to do that wins. Very replayable in that there's different sets or suits of cards you'll get to play with and you can mix and match as the game goes on. The base game comes with 12 and we've unlocked stretch goals so that the limited edition comes with 17 different suits. So highly recommend it. If you're listening to this after the 28th and you still want to check out the game, we will uh, be running a pledge manager and there should be a link on our campaign page to do a late pledge there. So you're not out of luck just yet if this is sometime early 2022 or 2021. Don't go in there. Sounds like a lot of fun. And I love that you talk about how the the point of the game is to not just have no curses, but just to be the least cursed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're going to be cursed, but at least you can be the least cursed. Right. You're, you're running away from the bear and you just don't want to be the slowest person exactly. uh, in the group. You just have to be the least cursed. Well, very exciting time for you. Can't wait to see what you guys have coming out next and good luck on the publishing end of things and the design end of things. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Clark. And that is it for this episode. Thanks again to George Jaros of GJJ Games for the details about his upcoming Extra Life charity auction. You'll find the link and details for that in the show description. And remember, it's coming up in just over a week, so you don't have a lot of time. And of course, my thanks to Andrew Nerger of R2i Games for his fascinating insight into the creation of their games and their company right here in Chicago. Make sure you check out the Kickstarter for their latest game, Don't Go In There, which ends in just a couple of days. As always, I want to thank all my listeners. If you enjoy what I'm doing, share it with your friends, your family. Hey, share it with your enemies. I don't care as long as you like it and as long as they listen. If you have a moment to rate and review the podcast wherever you find it, I really appreciate it. Helps me get the word out. As always, please share your feedback and thoughts with me, ideas for guests, whatever's on your mind. You can always reach me at Clark at BoardGameTimes.com, that's Times with an S, or on the Board Game Times page on Facebook. Until next time, thank you for listening, play lots of games, be good to one another, and may all of your board game times be the best of times. Take care. Take care.